Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, Food Junkies listeners. Did you know Food Junkies was a book before it was a podcast? Dr. Vera Tarman's book is available in audio and paperback. Be sure to get your copy today. Bring it with you when you join us in Toronto in October. To find out more about our in-person meetup, check the show notes. Also be sure to join Vera's Facebook group, I'm Sweet Enough, Sugar-Free for Life Support. Today, Vera interviewed Dr. Mark Lewis about his unique perspective on addiction. In this episode, Dr. Lewis shares his personal and professional journey about his first book, Memoir of an Addicted Brain, Addiction as a Learned Behavior. They talk about disease versus disorder. They talk about dopamine and the reward center. Vera and Mark talk about comparing substance use and addictive behaviors, relapse and its causes, abstinence, the inner critic and its role in addiction, relapse and recovery. They talk about internal family systems, how our environment and isms influence addiction and recovery. Dr. Lewis talks about techniques he uses when he's working with addiction and that not all approaches work for all people or at all times. Dr. Lewis talks about the pushback he's received, what's next, and our signature question. If he could tell a younger version of himself something about addiction, what would it be? Take it away, Vera. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host today. Today, we're speaking with uh, best-selling author Mark Lewis. Mark Lewis is a neuroscientist and professor of developmental psychology, most recently working at Radboud, University of Netherlands. He is author and co-author of over 50 journal publications in psychology and neuroscience. He is author of two books that are staples in the addiction field, Memoir of the Addicted Brain or of an Addicted Brain and The Biology of Desire. In Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, Mark shares his personal and clinical experience of addictions. Biology of Desire explores further the neurochemistry of addiction. These books, if you haven't read them yet, are fascinating must-reads for anyone who wants an insider view of the brain on drugs, what it feels like, and what is happening neurologically. Now, Mark is back in Toronto now working as a clinical psychologist. We at Food Junkies Podcast are interested in learning how Mark's understanding of addiction can help us approach food addiction differently. Can it be viewed as a behavioral issue rather than just as the result of a chronic progressive brain malfunction, which is how we're seeing it right now? So before we get into the discussion, hello, Mark. Hello, Vera. Nice to see you again. Yes, yes. It's it's great to see you again. And thank you so much for... uh, well, coming here all the way from wherever you are in Toronto, I'm in Toronto too. Okay, so you yourself are quite open in your memoirs book. So we always start with a bit of a, the personal. So would you be willing to tell us a little bit about how you got into the field of addictions, how you started off as a researcher in neuroscience, and then I'm assuming, because I read the book, how that morphed into your own personal story of addiction and then into your studies in developmental psychology. Just a little bit. Okay, well, the years of addiction were in my 20s, pretty much throughout my 20s, mostly pharmaceutical opiates. And I finally got off them at around the age of 30, 31. 
And then I got back into school, having been unceremoniously kicked out of a graduate psychology program for, for breaking into a, a drugstore. Got back in, got a PhD, got became a professor in developmental psychology. So that was the first step for me. And then went from developmental psychology to more developmental neuroscience, what's going on in the brain as kids develop, especially when we're looking at particular kinds of behaviors, anxiety, depression, trauma-induced issues, and, and any other kinds of problem behaviors that tend to mess up people's lifespan. And so from there... Yeah, I kind of got tired of the academic just mode of expression because it's very, very particular, very formalistic and doesn't doesn't reach a lot of people it needs to reach. So I decided to write a book or you know, pop psychology, a lay layperson's book. And at the time my partner said I was thinking of well, what what should I write it about? I want it to be about the brain and I want it to be about, you know, how the brain functions and development and stuff. Why don't you write about your years of addiction? Because that was pretty fascinating and certainly a developmental story it sure was yeah so that's how i got into it i I wrote that book about my years of addiction and with each chapter there's kind of a some dramatic or horrible event interspersed with what's going on in the brain with respect to different drugs yeah you know i I have to say that like i've read both of your books and i found them fascinating like like page turning if you haven't read them people please please read them and the thing that you're saying you're absolutely right that an academic article does not read well you have to really plow through and push yourself through and i don't know how you went from that kind of mode of writing to your ability i mean i'm assuming you didn't have a ghostwriter you really knew how to write that book both of those books are fascinating reads well thank you i have a good editor who often would say hey you're going to tell a story this is not fiction but you can tell a story tell the whole story don't hold back Tell what it felt like, what really happened, how bad it was, and so forth. That kind of guidance and mentoring was very useful for me. Yeah, great. Thank you. I mean, it it takes more than just a a good editor, although a good editor is worth their salt and gold, that's for sure. Yeah, and, you know, in academic writing, you hold back on anything that is subjective or, you know, vocational. This was kind of the opposite. And I love this kind of writing. To me, it's really fun. It's a lot more fun than the other. I, I am going to ask you in a little while what's next, but are you planning on doing another writing like that, book like that? Yeah, yeah, I've got I've got a proposal that I worked very hard sitting in my agent's office, hopefully in the front, middle of his desk, that uh, we we're hoping that a publisher will pick it up soon. Okay, if you're willing to talk about that later, I'll ask you, but you, you may want to keep that to yourself. I appreciate that. Okay, so you, you decided to write this thing, and then that's how I actually got to know you. But where did, then all of a sudden I heard that you went to the Netherlands. So how did that happen? Yeah, that was just, we had two four-year-olds at the time, my wife and I, four-year-old twins, and she was, she had a research position. I was a full prof at U of T. I wanted to be less involved in academia and get more into the popular science domain. She wanted to be more involved. We got a package deal at the university, Radboud, which some people know as Nijmegen. Nijmegen is the uh, the city. And it seemed like a great place to go with young kids. It's a nice environment to raise kids. So, And we just ended up staying. We ended up staying for 10 years because it was it was a good place to be. And then, then we came back to Toronto. Yeah, and now you're in Toronto. Yeah, so by then the boys were kind of bored of, well, essentially not a big city. We weren't in Amsterdam, and they they wanted to, they visited Toronto enough times to be intrigued to go back there, to, to try living there. 
Okay. Uh, just out of curiosity, you, you now are working as a clinical psychologist in Toronto. Are you working with addictions or not necessarily? The door's open. I see whoever comes. It's, okay. I'm in a practice with four or five other people. Okay. I, about 40% of my clients have addiction issues at the top of the chart, you know, at the top of their profile. Others, anxiety, PTSD, yeah. um, depression, loss of depression. And of course, all of these things are interlinked as we yeah. Okay. Well, as I said, I know you from your two books and from your understanding about addiction, and that's particularly what we're interested in at Food Junkies. So your first book, Memoir of an Addicted Brain, as I said, it's a vivid account of the addict mind, a blending of Mark's life story with a user-friendly account of how drugs affect the brain and create addiction. And then Biology of Desire picks up that concept of your view of addiction. So if you don't mind just explaining in a nutshell, you've talked about addiction as a learned I guess there's this distinction that the traditional medical model sees addiction as a disease process, a chronic progressive disease. And you're offering, not just you, but there, there's a few of you that are offering, no, it's something else. So do you want to elaborate on that, the sort of behavioral understanding of that? Yeah, there's quite a few of us now. I think that the actual balance is tilting in this direction. Even uh, NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, I looked at their website for over the last five years their postings, I could not find the word disease. It just, ah. now they call it a disorder. Yes. And there's a lot of problems with the word disease, but one of them is just simply, you know, a semantic, definitional. What does it mean? What does it mean to say addiction is a disease? There's so much misuse of the term, and it can be destructive for to tell someone they've got a chronic disease. Tough luck, Charlie. Uh, you know, you better just like watch yourself for the rest of your life. So there are clinical implications that are not desirable. So, you know, a number of us have focused a lot more on environmental circumstances, developmental issues, parenting, early abuse and neglect, stuff like that. And, and I think that's an important precursor and predictor of addiction to substances or alcohol or food or, or sex or porn or, you know, a few other things or, you know, uh, gaming because they usually lead to depression and anxiety, which is hard to regulate. And when the negative feelings are hard to regulate, people will find whatever works. I mean, that's sort of my general overview. Okay. Now, how is that different than the, you said that they're not using the word, well, first of all, are you okay with the word disorder? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> I why... have a bit on that one. Oh, oh, well, what would you prefer to use? I think disorder is okay, but I think addiction is so complex and so much a part of the personality that I'm sometimes hesitant to brand it, you know, to give it a, its own category. You know, it is a type of thing, a type of disorder. Is it or is it just, you know, certain kinds of life paths include addictive elements, which sounds a little bit different than a disorder. So I'm not entirely happy with that. Would, would you agree with, so if, if I'm using, I mean, I actually, I'm fine with the word disorder too, but, but really what I'm just wondering is, if I were to diagnose somebody with a, quote, disease or disorder, I'm going to look for the criteria, the substance use disorder. You know, yeah. is this person, you know, um, obsessively craving for something? Are they using despite despite negative consequences? Uh, do they struggle? Do you, do you agree with those those criteria? Yeah, more or less. I mean, I don't use DSM in any meaningful okay. I mean, I, sometimes as a, as a clinical psychologist from North America, I need to use the labels, but they're not very helpful for me personally. 
But yeah, we we both recognize there are people whose lives are, you know, torn apart by addictions of various kinds. And sure, when that happens and when you're constantly bumping up against, you know, all kinds of societal norms, you're losing friends, you're losing family, you're losing health, you're losing your life, you're losing money. And yeah, a disorder makes a lot of sense because of the friction between what you're doing and how other people are living their lives. Okay, so I guess we can agree on that. I don't know if we're necessarily disagreeing, but from that model of disease versus disorder, I want to sort of flush that out a little bit because a lot of people, well, first of all, so with the disease model that I'm operating by, it's the, the concept is there's a, you know, there's a dopamine overkill, basically an overabundance, and then the brain has to readjust it through neuroadaptation, you know, downregulation of receptors, et cetera. And that, that starts a process, a physiological process that's not just developmental or uh, biological. It, there's actually something that's happening in the brain that you could make the argument, this is a chronic progressive condition that is neurological. Do you, are, you, are you with me on that one or no? No. Okay, no. elaborate. So give me your perspective. Because that would help me explain. Let me just explain. That, that would help me explain why somebody who says I, I can have a lit, I can't have anything because that'll trigger the dopamine and then the craving will start and the whole phenomenon will start. But if you're not buying that model, then how would yeah. you explain why somebody is obsessed and then just uses despite adverse consequences? So the dopamine system, the mesolimbic dopamine system, yes. is very, very much misunderstood. Okay. It's involved in a lot of things. It's involved in addiction and love and gambling and craving and, you know, sports a lot. It's really important. I just read something by Kenneth Bloom, the guy who developed the, quote, reward deficiency syndrome. And there's, I don't you know, claptrap. I mean, it's just like... People still talk about dopamine as a pleasure chemical. It's not. Dopamine focuses and narrows attention on a goal and induces pursuit of the goal, which in the case of addiction, we we often call craving. And as it knows, it's been there. Craving is not pleasure. So yeah, the dopamine system's involved. But I think the most the more important neural components, what's going on. And by the way, I don't think you can talk about anything neural without talking about developmental processes. The okay. brain is always changing. It's plastic. It modifies itself according to experience. So it's always developmental. Even in, in your 80s, there's stuff changing, right? Okay. So I put those together. But but like I think that narrowing of the range of potential rewards is one way to think about about addiction that is consistent with a brain picture because you know in the brain we have okay we have this thing called predictive coding the brain is thinking ahead and focusing on what it's interested in so to speak what's familiar what's rewarding what's interesting so of course if you've been using cocaine or heroin or chocolate chip cookies for five years regulate your emotions that's where you're going to go and because the brain continues to build synaptic networks you know right. networks of connected neurons and so so just just for our listeners meaning therefore then that if i'm feeling in distress i can anticipate relief from that distress and yeah. i'm going to go there because of this neuro- neurological thing that's that's over time. It does. it's a basic it's not only survival it's the way mammals operate you yeah. have to have to focus on what's going to be good for you or what yeah. you think is going to be good for you. Okay. Right. So, yeah, you know, you could just say simply that a lot of attention gets devoted to a narrow range of possible regulating substances or processes, whether it's sex, food, or drugs. 
It's narrow. And guess what? At the same time, of course, the social world narrows. I'm, I'm very interested in that strange, shall we say, uh, just parallel as, as the attention stream and the brain, the actual synaptic networks that you might say are associated with feeling better. As that becomes more and more constrained, so does your social world. It gets smaller and smaller and you don't talk to your cousins or your kids or your you know partner anymore. You just talk to other addicts or your dealer. It's you know kind of a very yucky process from both perspectives. Can I conclude then? What you're saying is that the problem with somebody who's addicted to too much sugar or drug or something is that their options to deal with their distress are so narrow that that's the number one solution. And yeah. therefore, therapy would be let's open up those options to other options. Yes, I would agree with that. That's certainly going to be a big part of the therapy. Can be. Okay. And so if somebody were to say, but I can't think of anything else because I'm obsessed about this, it's not because there's a dopamine hypersensitivity, like an allergic response, as it were. It's actually more, they don't have another option. It's both. Okay. Uh, so so to, to be more precise, there yeah. are processes in the part of the brain called the striatum, which is yeah. involved in motivation and action and yeah. wanting, craving and all that. There are processes where some cells become wired together in a more compulsive pattern of behavior, you know, and it's it's the simplest way to think of it is the ventral striatum. Ventral means the south pole versus the dorsal striatum, the north pole, up the top and bottom, so to speak. And it's really interesting research, mostly by by a guy named uh, Robbins at Cambridge, that shows that the more people are use a particular substance or method to relieve their emotions, the more focused and concentrated, the more activation shifts from the ventral up to the dorsal. So what does uh-huh. that mean? That means a slightly different part of the brain starts to become involved in behavioral choices and they become more rapid and, as you say, and more automatic. Yes. So you're okay. like, now, you're, now you're acting before, and it's very much like OCD. It's very yeah. much like stimulus yeah. response, right? So there, there is something unique and special going on in the brain. I, I don't, I don't deny that it's special. Yeah. It's important, and it's an important way to think about addiction because it helps us understand why it's so hard to quit. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, it, but it's, it's not, definitely it's far more complicated than just the dopamine response, the initial response. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like the initial response is the dopamine gets sent up from the midbrain, gets yeah. fired, and and then then it lands somewhere. And there's all yeah. kinds of you know neurons all over the brain, different parts of the brain where it lands, different types of receptors. So that's what complicates the story in in, in a lot of ways. And you know, and just to build on that idea, like for a lot of people. The excitement, uncertainty, uh, even danger of acquiring drug substances yeah. can be a big part of the experience. Like right. that's that's the case in gambling. Actually, if you if you win too often in gambling, the dopamine levels go down. If you win uh-huh. too much, and if you lose too much, it goes down. You get uh-huh. the, the maximum dopamine levels when when you have maximum uncertainty. So, right, right. I'm just wondering how I could relate that to food. I mean, so the person, I mean, the, the first piece, which is I feel distressed, I'm going to have ice cream to just feel better. But yeah. then I suppose you could say what you're saying right now is, okay, if the person has a lot of ice cream, even when you're eating, it's not satisfying. Like the person yeah. is still wanting, even while they're eating, they're wanting something else. I guess it's looking for that, not necessarily uncertainty, but the new, something else new. I think that's right. Yeah. 
So yeah. if, you've got, if you've got a freezer full of ice cream, you know, like, you know, container after full of ice cream, it's going to uh-huh. be less attractive, less compelling. Yeah. Right. And that makes me think, I wouldn't have thought of this, but that makes me think, could that explain partly why people are successful with maybe abstaining and then they lose it? Like, like, why is it that, it, could it be an explanation for relapse to reintroduce that level of uncertainty, crisis, anxiety, when everything is steady state otherwise? Could we understand? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think relapse is also very complex, but sometimes people feel they're I'm okay now. I can play around with this. You know, yeah. I'm talking about that, right? And, yeah. uh, and sometimes they really can't play around with it without falling back into a very habitual routine that can mess up their lives yeah. in a serious way. But yeah, so part of that is it becomes different, becomes more novel. It's like, oh, I wonder what that would feel like now. I haven't done it in two years. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, okay. kinds of stuff there. Okay, my next question, which I have to ask you, is the concept of abstinence. So in the disease model, you know, you recognize that something is broken, uh, something, and we don't want to go back to that disrepair, so we have to abstain. So in the model that you're using, which is that it's a much more complex dopaminergic, um, may fire off with the dopamine, but then I guess I like that concept of autonomic thoughts develop. So would you, based even on that thinking, would you make the argument that in some cases people do have to be abstinent? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I think with respect to alcohol, there's a guy, what's his name? James um, will come to me. He's a really serious alcohol researcher in the UK who also acknowledges publicly that he had an alcohol use problem for a long time, abstained for several years, and then successfully got back to social drinking. Many people don't successfully get back to social drinking, and he, he, he knows that. And one of the big dangers and, you know, kind of loopholes is that you don't really know unless you really know yourself and really know how that substance is integrated into your own attachment system. So it's kind of trial and error and that can be, it can go wrong and it could fuck up your life. Yeah. How would you explain a person who cannot abstain versus one that can, if you're not using sort of dopamine, the want switch is broken? concept of sort of typical version of addiction where there's a dopaminergic hypersensitivity that is now forever hypersensitive like i often say to people it's kind of like once you're diabetic you're always a diabetic because your your insulin receptor that resistance is it's it never it's not robust enough to go back to square one And, and i say that's the same as a dopaminergic thing but you're you're probably thinking that's not the case Tell me what your perspective is. Why could somebody... It's not not a bad metaphor in some ways. It's not, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but in some ways your thinking has become mismanaged so much, so to speak, that you you fall back into bad habits really quickly. Well, how I think about that is I I think about it much more in terms of deeper psychological processes, especially self-blame, self-accusation, shame, and defiance. Like as, as you and I have talked about a bit, in my psychological practice, I follow a model called internal family systems. Okay. And the internal family is up here. It's the voices that we all hear in our heads sometimes. He's pointing to his brain here, folks. <laughs> yeah. my head. I've got him too, you know. And, and most people will acknowledge an internal critic. You know, that's almost part of the common language now. Yeah. My critic, my, you know, is scolding me. I shouldn't have done that. Okay, well, there's that, but there's also maybe an internal part of you that is defiant and that says, I don't want to listen to you. I hate you. I want to be free. I'm tired of following the rules. 
when I think of addiction as a pattern that becomes self-perpetuating and really difficult to stop, it's because those two internal voices start to feed each other and start to, they become, it's a polarization that, that's self-reinforcing. You get more and more strict with yourself, more and more punitive and shaming. Oh, you did it again, you asshole. I can't believe you did it again. How are you going to explain yeah. it to your wife or whatever, your kids? So <laughs> that internal critic the the more powerful it gets, the more powerful gets the other part that says, I don't want to listen to you. I'm getting out of here. You make me feel really bad. And I know one way to feel better. And that's where I'm going. See you later. Okay. And, uh, and if I wanted to tie that to the biology, what we've already discussed, is that in a way challenging that those set autonomic patterns that have been developed sort of in the in the other part of the brain? Like, like That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot, and that that is what I think my next book will be about. Oh wow! Because <laughs> because like it's mysterious; it's not so simple, right? Like I think the self-critical voice starts to develop around the age of four, five, six. You know, you're scolded by your parents for this and that, and then you start scolding, scolding yourself. Yeah, and, and just just to make this relevant to people listening, this is like the person who's trying to be on a diet and they relapse again, and they're hating themselves because they're overweight, they're diabetic, and their doctor's going to yell at them, right? And there's that other part that's saying, "But I want that thing, I right. want that food." Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the other part, well, what's that? That's that's also comes from a young age that you know when I was like four or five, and my mom got really mad at me and I got spanked and stuff. I would either come down and try to be a good boy, I'll be better, I won't do it again, yeah. or I, I would run down the block and go into the ravine and hang out in the ravine for a while because I just wanted to be free. And when I became an addict, so to speak, I don't use that word quite that way, but it was pretty much the same two parts of me, the scoldy part and the part that said, I want to have fun. I want to be free. It's not just fun. It's like authenticity. It uh-huh. feels like real me. Uh-huh. So, okay. So that's interesting. So your therapeutic approach then, because here you are, you're wanting to give um, options, right? So yeah. what would you do in that case? Person is saying, I can't stop eating and, and I don't want you to tell me yeah. to stop. I can't restrict. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what would you do? Yeah. So people try to connect this with the the neuroscience, the neurobiology of it, and it's not so easy, but I think we'll get there eventually. But for now, what would you, okay, clinically, good question. In IFS, internal family systems, what they do is very different from a a, a rehab setting. Rehab setting, we would just scold. Yeah. Scold or medicate the defiant self to submission, basically. Exactly. So, yes. So in IFS, internal family systems, it's almost the opposite. You you make friends with both voices. You talk with them. You listen to them. Why are you so mad at me? Oh, because of that. Yeah. You must be really mad because I did it again last night and I stole the money from my mother's wallet or whatever. And okay, you're really hating me for that, aren't you? Yes. Okay. Well, let's, I I know that wasn't a very good thing to do. And I know why you're mad. And I know you are always trying to keep me good and make sure I don't do that again. And geez, that must be a lot of work for you. And you actually talk with these voices and it's kind of magical form of therapy. I found it really effective. Do you think it would have helped you when you were 21 years old? If somebody had said, I remember you, you had the story of being in that lab with mice or something like that. And if somebody had said, hey, what are you doing? You're going to lose your PhD. And then, you know, what's going on? Do you think you would have had a different reaction? 
Yeah, I do. I mean, I use this technique with people from age, you know, 17 through 70. And anyway, so you're talking to the critical part, but you're also you're also talking to that rebel defiant part. Yeah. And you're saying like, I I just been I've been dealing with a a fentanyl addict the last little while and he Mm -hmm. got clean for six months. And I think it was entirely through IFS therapy that he was able to do that. Then he relapsed. Okay, and then so we got back into it, got the voices back in focus, got the, you know, like like a lot of, like, I think you can generally agree that when people relapse, they sort of forget how to to regulate themselves and how to control themselves, how to slow down and think about things. Because they're in such full of shame. Yeah, or, or, yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, but because they haven't really dealt with the inner problem. They stopped using for three months or six months, but there's still a little kid in there who's scared and shamed and feels crappy, and so that when the opportunity comes up, they go for it, right? So, so Vera, just to finish that point, yeah, and, yeah. I, Please do. and I think this does apply to, to people with eating disorders as well. When you talk to the rebellious, defiant part and listen to it, and it's, it's it's strange at first, you know, as he uses guided imagery, you kind of get and think about that part and move back from it so you can address it and say, okay, what's going on with you? Why, why do you feel you need to do this right now? Because I'm bored. Okay, you're bored, really? What does bored feel like? Well, it feels not just bored. It feels like something bad's going to happen. Okay, so something bad's going to happen. And if you eat a whole bunch of ice cream right now or, you know, grab, you know, contact your your opiate dealer, how's that going to help? Well, then I'm going to feel free of it. I'm going to feel like, okay, I don't have to deal with that right now. I'm a free agent and to hell with everybody else and their rules and stuff. I feel better. And okay, you feel better, but let's think about what you're doing. And let's think about how much better do you actually feel and how long does that last? Yes, not not long at all. Not long at all. So you you start these dialoguing with the voices that are already there, and they start to change. They start to free up and and relax and become, so to speak, more sensible, more part of you rather than just this, you know, kind of isolated, freakish mechanisms that are so automatic. Okay, so what would you do then in a circumstance like addiction is a classic, uh, I mean, taking the perspective that sometimes addiction is a, you know, a reasonable response to an unreasonable world. So, you know, I guess like Gabor Mate's thing that this is a a response to trauma. I mean, we're living in a circumstance where we can't change traumatic past and they continue to develop in kids as we see it. And, And, you know, in the food world, it's, so people respond instead of drugs, they use food. Uh, and then they're living in a, an environment where there's no acknowledgement that food is a problem. So it, in fact, it's encouraged. So how can you get out of that mess when your environment is working against you right from the get-go and then on onwards? So, yeah, the environment is a mess in all kinds of ways. You yeah. From a particular family with particular problems, maybe some of them might be genetically linked, but a lot of them are just plain let's just say bad parenting right or isolating shaming kind of parenting and you can't get rid of that you're right you can't get rid of that you also can't get rid of racism and poverty and sexism and the other thing that might be making you feel bad so what do you do and you can't get rid of the supermarkets that are in your face all the time with all of their goodies so that's, yeah, which is kind of interesting difference, I guess, between the use of illegal substances, for example, and the use of food. And nowadays, cannabis is a really interesting kind of middle ground. Yeah. 
it's become legalized. So what's that about? Some people, well, anyway, there's lots we could talk about. But Oh, yeah, that's a very interesting subject. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but the availability is a problem. The the things that make you feel uncomfortable and bad in your own skin, that's a problem. You can't do much about either of those things. All, all you can really do is change the way you are talking with yourself. Change what that feels like. And okay. in IFS, they, they have a concept of what they call self, capital S, self. Okay. That's really just your your own heart, your own essence, your self-care. I think it's, it would be a good synonym. It's, it's the feeling of, I care about you. I want to take care of you. I want to help you. When you say that to your own addictive parts, they start to settle down. They feel, I don't care if the shelves are full of food. I don't uh-huh. really need that right now because I feel loved from inside. Uh-huh. It changes the whole system. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, we're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Sweet Sobriety has two amazing workshops in the month of July. Be sure to join Molly Pingshop, licensed clinical professional counselor and licensed addiction counselor on Fridays as she covers codependency from codependent to interdependent. This workshop may be for you if you have low self-esteem, familial dysfunction, depression, anxiety, stress, low emotional expressivity, having a hard time saying no, having poor boundaries, showing emotional reactivity, feeling compelled to take care of people, having a need for control, especially over others, having trouble communicating honestly, fixating on mistakes, feeling a need to be liked by everyone, feeling a need to be always in a relationship, denying one's own needs, thoughts, and feelings, having intimacy issues, confusing love and pity, displaying fear of abandonment. This workshop will identify what codependency is and isn't. It'll help you identify why codependency and addiction go hand in hand. It'll explain how codependency affects recovery. It'll teach you how to recognize the signs as an individual and in relationships if codependency is an issue. It'll help you identify your attachment style and how you can shift it. It'll help teach you how to prevent codependent relationships from developing, and it'll support you in working toward interdependence and independence. What you'll get are pre-recorded videos to watch at your own pace, downloads, worksheets, and resources, and four one-hour live sessions that will be recorded and available for replay. Join us Fridays, July 7th, 14th, 21st, 28th at 12 p.m. Pacific or 3 p.m. Eastern or 8 p.m. UK in July. The workshop is $50 US. And I also wanted to let you know that we are running a free foundations workshop for anyone who has purchased the foundations course. This is a work at your own pace course of $200 US. And we will meet on Wednesdays, July 5th, 12th, 19th, and 26th at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. UK. And we'll cover three modules each week. Be sure to check the show notes for the links. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. All right. Now, something you said a little earlier that I want to bring out, and I I think it is a point where we may disagree, you and I, I don't know, we'll see. And you talked about in one podcast that I heard the, the concept of choice and empowerment. And then you had said about how people, 
you know, get deflated if they hear they have a disease. What's the point? And so, so what I want to post to you is what do you say when people will say, thank you for telling me I have a food addiction or an addiction that explains that therefore my willpower, which I just feel terrible about because I don't have any willpower. And now I can explain why, because I have a disease, I have a problem and now you're going to give me tools. But if, if I'm told that I have the ability to make a choice and have empowerment, how am I not going to feel bad? So what's your take on that concept of uh, choice and empowerment in the face of somebody who is not being able to choose? So that's obviously a really central issue right there. Yes, yes, yeah. Please, let's flush that one out. So, so choice is such a complicated thing, right? Choice is weird. I mean, you can choose to take to drive by the your normal route home by the liquor store, or you can go one block over. And if mm-hmm. you go one block over and you don't pass the liquor store, then your chances of not getting drunk that night are going to be a lot better. So you're making a choice at some point yes. in that cascade, but maybe, you know, not at the point of having the bottle to your lips. So like, you know, choice is something that we do with the cognitive parts of our brain. We think ahead. Choice is usually about thinking ahead. Yes. When, when choice is more compulsive, like we've been talking about, it's then, yeah, it's a different animal. It doesn't really feel like choice anymore. It feels like a, like a push from behind. Yeah. Okay. But you don't want to call that disease. You would rather call that. So what you said, yeah, go what, ahead. what you said about, thank you for letting, telling me I have a disease. Thank you. Because now I don't feel so what don't feel so what I think the word I put, I would put in there is shame. And you yes. might agree with me. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. And absolutely. I don't feel so ashamed. So that's good. It's good to feel less ashamed because shame is toxic. Shame is horrible. So if that works, and I, I even use that, you know, even though I don't call it a disease, I, I will say this is really hard for you to stop, isn't it? And we can think about the brain and we can think about neural pathways, but we can also just think about habits. I mean, you got okay. people that have habits. Like how much added value do you get by going, uh, you know, from outside the skin to inside the, the skull and saying, okay, this is a brain habit rather than a behavior habit. You know, you might get a little extra traction there but maybe not so much but one way or another helping people say i understand i get how you how you feel pushed how you feel like there's no choice how automatic this this feeling and 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 decision becomes for you i really get it and i don't want you to feel terrible about that because that's what happens sometimes and we're going to work with that because they'll they'll use words like they'll say, I really like step one. I admit that I'm powerless over alcohol, food, sex, and that my life has become unmanageable. That is a huge relief for people. And so what would your step one be then, I guess, as an alternative, just so I can understand the alternative way? Yeah. Okay. My step one. And by the way, I, I, I don't subscribe to AA per se, but I know it helps quite a number of people. I, you know, yeah. and I, I certainly know. I'm not an AA basher by any means. Sometimes I even, you know, suggest it for people. But my first step as a psychotherapist would be, just first of all, to say, I'm not going to judge you. I, I don't judge. And if you're using or not using on a given day or a given week, it's really okay. I'm not going to feel angry or disappointed. I just want to be there with you and help you figure it out. That, that would be my first step. Okay. And then about the choice. Well, one day, uh, what would you say about choice? Well, so, yeah, well, this probably is a place where we disagree. I don't generally focus on, on the substance use itself as the focal point in therapy. It's just a, a consequence of something else. Yeah, I focus on the underlying stuff. 
Okay. And then I just got a guy, you know, this week who uh, finally gave up smoking cannabis all day long, came into the office just bright as a tack and happy and proud and sitting upright. We never talked about cannabis. Ah. We just never talked about it. Wow. It just stopped because he felt more inside himself and comfortable. So you would be somebody then, like a lot of people will say, I don't want to see you in my office unless you're clean of that substance. Because if your face is in the food or in the drug or in the whatever, you're still high or you're still uh, focused on that substance. This is this is how a lot of us think. You don't. I think that's idiotic. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I mean, if I come to you with an addiction problem, say, I don't want to see you until you no longer have an addiction problem. What the hell? <laughs> But what about, is your frontal lobe, do you have the clarity of mind to be able to do all the necessary things like rationalize, forgive, yeah, all yeah, the things that are required? Well, you know this phrase, addiction, hijacking the brain. Yes, yeah. It's an extreme exaggeration. It does not hijack the brain. I, even when I was using really powerful opiates and stuff, I was still going to university and, you know, getting good grades for, for years. And I was able to do that. My brain was not absent. Okay, but, but I had a problem for sure. But Vera, one thing I just to clarify is, yeah, yeah. Um, although this may sound more permissive or different, I I'm not yeah talking about the substance use or the food use itself. Uh-huh. If people are in extreme urgent situations where their use of whatever is really endangering them and they're about to dive, you know, one way yeah. or another, I will talk about it. I will say, uh-huh. let's think about a way, then I will resort more to sort of a cognitive behavioral type approach, less right. deep focus, more like, what are we going to do about this situation today? Yeah, because today is is imperative. You might not be here tomorrow. Your rent yeah. will be gone or you'll, you'll be dead or something. Okay. Exactly. All right. Now, another thing that you say somewhere, which is along the lines of the deeper way of thinking is a person needs to look at their goals and perspectives, larger goals, and can they be changed? in some way to support a better lifestyle. I mean, do you believe it's possible that somebody can continue to use with a better, like improve their life and now they can pay their rent? Like, I mean, is sobriety necessary or are you totally harm reduction in the sense of if it reduces harm, I'm good with that. And then ultimately, do you think that you can cure addiction using your approach? Oh yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. You can literally walk away from the compulsivity of it. Yeah. At some point. Yes. Like the guy just like the guy just told you about. Yeah. Okay. So that that would mean that if somebody were saying like I want to put this to sugar addiction, that if a person got to the heart of whatever problems that they're dealing with using your approach or something like that, that they might be able to have sugar gain. Yeah. Or a substance, a cigarette. The main point is just that if the drive starts to go down, 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 you lose interest in the thing. I don't feel like doing that. It feels boring. Right. I've always done that. I just don't feel like it anymore because there's a whole lot less shame because the system has opened up and there's love and self-compassion in there. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. that means the motivation itself has shifted in, in, in a really fundamental way. There's not as much reason to use. It just isn't. Okay. Well, I have to say that I can agree with you. And if I think about it in the context of people who have been sober, like I'm talking food now uh, for a long time, will say, I don't want the sweet, the desserts, the the Timbits or whatever it is that's there anymore, because I don't want to feel sick. I don't want to feel like that craving anymore to use. I just want to walk by. And they're not like 
driven by a superstitious fear that if I have one little piece, I'll, I'll fall apart. It's just yeah. they're choosing not to. So, I mean, I can, I guess that's along the lines of what you're saying. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay. and there's probably be loopholes and dangers. Yeah. You know, it's, it takes right. to change habits. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, just one more thing. I was going to say in yes. what you said about changing long-term plans and goals, we yes. often about that as choosing sobriety or that, but this guy who stopped smoking cannabis all day long, he made another kind of choice. He wanted a future as in finance and the world of finance and making money for other people who made money, who made money all about making money. Yeah. It wasn't him. And I could tell. And he finally, one day came in and said, I'm not going to do that. I'm changing my, my goals entirely. I want to be a, I won't say exactly, but a very yeah. different career. And he looked so happy and proud and together. Uh-huh. So those things came together. It was changing yeah. all sort of goals and the narrative of the self, the life that I want to lead. But it gets to the addiction part, you know, through the side door kind of. Okay. All right. Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, so now I have another question that pulls me back to, I guess, the disease model. And that is um, that there are some experiences like post-traumatic stress, for example. So yeah. something terrible happened one time and it will now wake me up in the middle of the night. It will now be intrusive thoughts throughout the day. I have to have hypervigilance. Basically, yeah. that to me is a, is a version of addiction when a person is in extreme addiction. I mean, can you see the analogy there? Like yeah. a person uses a substance and that's a powerful experience that is imprinted in, you know, the memory. Yeah. We always remember hyper extreme reactions and addiction yeah. is an extreme reaction. How can we forget? Like, like it, That would be like telling a person has post-traumatic stress. You know what? You can choose not to have that experience, but they're going to say, no, I can't. This hounds me and yeah. I can't control it. Now, what do you say to that? So, so what I'm hearing you say, yeah, they're both intense experiences, but one is fundamentally awful and the other is about relief. So they're really different in terms of content. Like well, if you, it's, if you, except that a person with uh, who's eating and they're beyond, like they're end stage, what, what I would say end stage addiction, there's no more relief. It's it's a relentless drive to, true. I guess, seek relief. You're right, but they don't get the relief. Right. It's a definitely a seeking relief. Yeah. So there's the dopamine anticipation. Finally, this will stop. I think you're you're right to think of those two as parallels in the sense that they both become strong neural habits. Yes. Habits of mind, habits of brain. Yes. I think yeah. you're reliving something awful over and over again. It be, it occupies more and more territory up here, all over your brain. And same when you're spending your whole day thinking about, you know, getting some coke. Or am I going to wait till tomorrow? Or am I going to call my dealer tonight? Or, you know, yeah. it's occupying a lot of space. It comes along like that really fast before you have a chance to think yourself. Can you cure using your model? Can you see yourself getting out of that grip if addiction is like post-traumatic stress? Or is it that that person might be, I don't want to say doomed, but altered, permanently altered? Well, that, but that is, you kind of stumbled right into it. It does sound like doom, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> so, well, my technique, so to speak, I mean, it's not exactly a good therapeutic model. I just, I'm still feeling it out. As I, I use IFS, but I, I use my yeah. version of it. The approach is that these habits and rapid choices, rapid, almost involuntary choices to take the thing is... It's so wrapped up in shame and self-anger and other anger. And those emotions are so powerful. They're so sudden that if you start working on the emotional stuff, 
it disempowers those impulses. It makes okay. them smaller. It slows them down. Well, okay. once you slow them down, you have a chance to get in there. Right. right. And then it might not be quite so much of a negative reaction or a, a, a strong reaction. I don't know what a, another word is. Okay. Yeah, no, you can literally get in there, slow it down, and make it make it less, you know, ur- urgent. And when you make it less urgent, then you have a chance to think, I don't really want to feel like that. I, it's just not going to happen. Right. And and that's where, because you use the word spontaneous recovery, which really struck me as, wow. So is that where, like, your, your fellow with the cannabis, that strikes me as a, an example of spontaneous recovery, wouldn't you say? Pretty much. I mean, I would like to say it's also a function of... <laughs> he, oh, you. <laughs> you have to be a therapist. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Okay. Sure. Oh, okay. I think you meant it in the context of just a person decides, you know, I, I don't really want to do this anymore. Just depend on therapy. You know, it can go either way. But you know, a lot of people do are drinking a lot in their twenties, binge drinking especially. And the statistics show that that a lot of that stops by the end of the twenties, early thirties, because the whole life context changes and their sense, you know, their self concept changes. Well, that would be more what I would think of as spontaneous recovery. Okay, and just to bring this back to food addiction. I don't know how much you know about the world of food addiction, but we're spending a lot of time trying to say, hey, this is as as strong, as compelling, as damaging as certainly tobacco addiction, no question about that, but even something as compelling as uh, alcohol or cocaine addiction must be taken seriously that way. And then to help people who are saying, I just feel so full of shame. So what, what, Mark, can you suggest that we do, especially since you may not agree with that approach, but what, what would you say that we can do to add to our tools as we work with people and also try to make our way in the uh, professional world right i mean i i know eating disorders and food problems can be very serious in fact nora volko the person right she uh they had a night of forever she studied binge eating disorder right and saw actually parallel neural changes in people with to to that and substance use uh, people with the long-term substance addictions so i have no doubt that it could be serious and and really deep and really really hard to change so well what should we do well <laughs> what what can you add to what we're already doing which is trying to stake our ground that this is a serious condition and yeah. we, you know and, and people are using internal family systems they're, they're using what is a contingency? There's the CBT, DBT. They're using a number of things to help. Just what happened? Yeah. Give us some tools that we can add into the pile. Okay. Well, internal family system is a very specific focus where you yeah. actually look at the different parts of yourself, four or five different parts, and yes. then you care for them, you help them, you calm them down, you love them, and they feel different. All those other approaches, CBT, DBT, and they're more a little more superficial, more cognitive and stuff. They're not, I mean, they often help. It's I'm not saying they're bad. It's just different. I, I'm not sure how to approach your question. I because with I, I did work with someone with a serious eating, binge eating problem, bulimia for about a year and a half. Boy, it was so entrenched. It was really yeah. difficult for her to Entrenched is a good word, isn't it? That's and, yeah. I know. And and so, you know, I I'm not an AA type persons, I don't use that. But so what do we do? We went to a lot of stuff and she got to a place where she found so much internal anger that was like this part of her that was like, you know, like just like roiled up and ready to like, right. a, like a raging beast. ready yeah. to come out of her. So we tried to deal with that, with it that way. Yeah. But frankly, 
that really wasn't, it took a long time and it was, it wasn't that effective. And finally, I, I ended up saying things like, I think you should go somewhere, go to a resort for three weeks. So you'd be out of your environment and go to, yeah. and you won't be at the same grocery store. She was buying the same food. Yeah. Every yeah. Day, yeah. When you talk about entrenched, I, I, hear out my thought here. That that thing about food is it's very primal. It's like our one of our first yeah. pleasures is you know maternal connection, maternal gaze while we're you know in taking in this highly sweet fatty substance which is right. breast milk. So right. there's a real primalness, and right. when that is distorted, talk about developmental psychology going wrong right from day one. And how would you fix something like that? I mean, I'm not asking you for a solution here. I'm more yeah. or less saying this is why it's so entrenched. Because it's so, so I think in this respect, you and I are seeing it in this very similar way. I, I think you're right. I think my IFS approach was not being very effective with her. I mean, go, suggesting that she get out of her little uh-huh. you know world and and take a vacation and go somewhere else. For, that's like see, that's cognitive behavior therapy, right? That's yeah. much different. Well, because why? Partly because just doing it less for whatever reason, any reason at all, just doing it less makes the drive less intense and less. Yes, yes, which is our, that's our concept of abstinence. Right. right Yeah. So that, that, yeah, of course it can't be abstinent with food, but you can certainly change the the habit, the pattern. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Whatever works in that case is just try to, you know, yeah, try to interfere with it, try to obstruct it, try to, you know, Put it, wall it off. Okay, and that you and I would agree. <laughs> yeah, walling it off, exactly, which is like the treatment center, but not, anyway. Okay, now let's just, because we have to close off here now. With your discussion, maybe not so much now because you're. it sounds like you're not sort of in the public foray at this point. Have you had any pushback or what's been your general, what's been the general response to your ideas, especially from the uh, traditional medical model world? Have you been, I mean, your books have been, I don't know if they're truly bestsellers, but they're they're they are staples. Yeah, they, they have sold well. And they, yeah, still- I, they have sold well. I mean, everybody knows them. I just mentioned your name in class, and somebody will be nodding. Yeah, so you know they they've at least read the Biology of Desire. That's a big one. The other one's big too. Yeah, no, I'm proud of that. And yeah, and they've been translated into quite a few languages. They're now audiobooks and stuff. So, but so I did get pushed back. Because I was on these, you know, interviews and podcasts and stuff. And from the world of NIDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse, some people were really mad at me. Like, what's his name? Um, The alcohol guy. uh, um, We had this debate on CBC. He was yelling at me. He said, Uh, I've had five friends die from alcoholism, and you have the audacity to say that's not a disease. Ah, yeah, right. It's like a disease model thing. Yeah, so that's one side of it. And the other side, though, was like a lot of people felt this is very important. I never felt it was a, a disease that never made sense to me. Thinking about the psychological... At that time, I wasn't into IFS. That was before I got into it. Yeah. But I was talking about the psychology, what's going on in there. And yeah. for a lot of people found that really useful. And so it was a very bifurcated response. Some people liked my stuff. Some people hated it. <laughs> Right. Okay. All right. right. And when you get to stuff like the opioid crisis, especially in the U.S., but it's like, you know, people would come and say, well, we need to get these people, you know, we need to get them suboxone and methadone and we do off the street and needle exchanges and stuff. And how does you how are you going to help that by saying it's not a disease? It won't even be covered by insurance if it's not a disease. Ah, that's a good point. 
right? So what do I want? So I'll say, okay, that is a <laughs> that's a political, you know. Yeah social um issue yeah. legal issue it's not a scientific issue i, I, I can't think that's, that's how that relates to the food thing too yeah right so yeah okay you use it that way if it helps but i can't i can't back it as someone who's thinking scientifically right okay okay good thank you all right so now what is next for you mark you kind of alluded to another book are you willing to say more about it or do you need to put that on the you want to wait it's uh you know, the publishing world is very challenging and quite difficult to get things out there. But I hope this book get picked up. I, I've spent a long time thinking about it and putting together a few chapters. And it's really, IFS, Internal Family Systems, is the last in a long line of models that look at the personality as made up of different components. Like yeah, Freud, like, like I was saying, like Gestalt was like a 1970s yeah, start, right? Yes, yeah. for pearls. The two chairs have to You can sit in one chair and say, you know, that's a piece of shit. And then you go to the other chair and you say, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. <laughs> I remember I did that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, me too, a little. A- anyway, but so it goes all the way back. It goes back to Freud and, you know, the id's ego, super ego. And so in my book, I, I want to say this modularity of mind, this modular of personality, what... I want to take it to the neural level as much as possible and say what's going on inside at a what's a scientific because everyone has covered this stuff in terms of metaphor. Yes. yes. And IFS also uses metaphors, the internal parts, the protectors and the exiles. Okay. So my my question is what happened? Can we get beyond the metaphors and get to an actual more scientific understanding? Here? That would be fascinating. And I can just imagine that you would do such a good job because you'd have a story about each of these parts. Like that's fascinating. Okay, so we have one more question. It's our final signature question. And that is, Mark, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about addiction, probably not food addiction, just addiction in general, what would it be? Well, one thing that's been very interesting for me is that my suffering as someone with an addiction problem has also led to a kind of knowledge and compassion and understanding for people that really feeds me as a psychotherapist. Someone, and not only people, not only someone working with addictions, but just understanding suffering and isolation and loneliness and shame. It, uh-huh. It's been a double-edged sword. I, I, I paid for it, but it's really helped me become a bigger, more comprehensive, more generous person. So that was kind of good okay okay so you probably would say something like you're good yeah i'm good now i'm i'm pretty good and i'm pretty old it's been a long life and you know (laughs) it's fine but i'm I'm healthy and um i guess i would say to myself hey guy you know you're gonna make it it's okay you're gonna hurt it's gonna it's gonna be a lot of bruises but you're gonna come out the other side you're gonna be in good shape and yeah you're gonna be in a wonderful office in toronto helping other people yeah yeah okay Uh, um, For for our listeners, again, that was Mark Lewis, and his two books are a must-read. If you haven't read them, I'm sure you have. Read them again. They're fabulous books. Memoirs of an Addicted Brain and Biology of Desire, and hopefully soon to come another book. Thank you so much, Mark, for spending time with us. Thanks, Fred. My pleasure talking with you, always. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. 
While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.